Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. The Desideratum podcast celebrates stories, the art of telling, and the journey of listening. With narrator Teresa Bakken and her author, artist, and wordsmith friends. Episode 29. One of the things I love about it is you incorporate into a lot of the romance scenes smells and tastes of the time. Yes. I, I just really liked that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a very sensory writer. I literally have boxes. That's Vanessa Riley. You can hear her rifling through a crowded bookcase to access a multi-compartment box stuffed with fabric swatches. She's going to hold them up to her computer's camera to show me their textures during our call. Okay. So this oh. is fabrics um, because I like to think about how things feel, how they're going to, you know, how they move. Like, so I have different types of leather from the time frame. I actually have some Osnaberg, which was, um, it's more coarse. It's more mm. canvassy what they wore than this particular version of that. But you want to, you know, like the way that satin, when you're moving, the, the way light plays on it, you want to feel all of that. I have a box of, I call Sense. So I have sense of these different things from, you know, from lemongrass to palmettos and all this sort of stuff so that I want to put you there. Yeah. We, we so rarely see these islands and colonies as they were. And if I can weave some of that into it, I, I'm going to weave uh, some of that in there. A weaver of intricate tales is a great way to think about Vanessa. We're talking to her about her richly detailed, sweeping historical novel based on the true life story of a woman who rises from slavery to power and autonomy against all 18th century odds. We start by talking about Vanessa's qualifications and the perspective they give her. I found your bio just really fascinating Thank you. Um, Thank you. unusual I think or unique maybe in the realm of authors mm -hmm. for um, how you came to writing so I thought could we start by talking a little bit about your background so what you're addressing is I have a very technical background I have a, a bachelor's and a master's in mechanical engineering from Penn State University I have a master's in industrial engineering, engineering management from Stanford University and a PhD in mechanical engineering from Stanford University. Uh, and so that just naturally means I'm going to go and do all different types of fictional writing, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the perfect bio for historical <laughs> fiction, right? Um, but for me, um, it helps to have that analytical side because it makes me question the world in a different way. Um, I think I go several layers more because not mm -hmm. only do I, I want to know what happened, but I want to know the motivations, why. And I believe that if we carefully examine the historical record, the actual what true circumstances of what happened, not people's aberrations of what happened or 
sanitization of history of what happened, but what actually happened to explain motivations. I think that intense level of detail that I go into, that's all coming from the engineering side. Uh, But I was very fortunate as a young girl, I was pretty gifted in both math and uh, writing. I won several writing competitions. I was on like the math team and academic team and all these different things in high school. Uh, But my mother was a very realistic woman. And she said, you need to be able to always pay your bills. So that was a a reason to pursue engineering. Yes. That is definitely a marketable skill. Yes. Very marketable skills. And at the time I'm growing up, I see lightning strike for somebody who looks like me to have a full-time successful career in writing. It's one of, they're, they're not that very many. It's a shooting star that happens. And I'm so grateful for every time lightning is struck and we get the works of a Beverly Jenkins, a Brenda Jackson, Eva Rutland. Um, well, but it strikes me too that you probably experienced that in both of your careers, that you are probably one of the only women in the room sometimes in an engineering uh, capacity or in a software capacity. That was less strange because I... With math, one plus one equals two. Mm. You don't get the layer of subjectivity. No one can say, you know, I don't like her. So therefore, I don't like two plus two is four. It's very crystal clear. So even at times where I am the only woman in the room, um, you stay in that room. Mm. Because no one can question two plus two as being four. That's interesting that you have found that if you can just prove yourself, that that's an easier room to prove yourself in. Pretty much so. Um, Because your skills will speak for themselves when you can meet those challenges. But there's different challenges in different rooms that we find ourselves in. You know, writing, sometimes it comes down to marketability. Can Mm -hmm. we market this idea? We don't, you know, it's not necessarily the best ideas that win. It's is it, the, is it right for the marketplace? And these are valid questions because yeah. the worst case in the world is to get to publish something and it never sees the light of day because yes. maybe you're too early or, or you're, you're too late or um, mm. there has to be a good fit. So some of the best ideas in the world just are not meant to be traditionally published or are meant to be independently published, but it's, it's very subjective. Yes. There's, you know, two plus two in writing world doesn't necessarily equal four. Right. So how do you choose the story you want to tell when you like, how do you measure that marketplace to find the kind of gem that you have in, in the Island Queen that lands so solidly with the audiences that are receiving it? I gave up on the marketplace. I decided mm. I'm going to write the story I want to write. And oh. if it's, if it so chooses to find its way in traditional publishing, that was the way it was going to be. If it so chooses to be um, independently published, that's the way it's going to be. My career has, has some people look at it as being storied, but it's actually been a long, long time in the, the weeds because when I first published mm. in 2013, there was always a market question will people buy books written by this woman, this black woman? Mm. Will people buy books that have diverse leads in a genre that's known to be 
very upper crust, um, very, very white. You're talking about writing in sort of this Regency period, right? This is your area of historical fiction has been very whitewashed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Georgian um, and Regency history, the 1750s to about 1830 timeframe is very whitewashed. We typically get either a European perspective or an American perspective, uh, but we forget about the West Indian and African perspectives to this because 80% 80% of your wealth at that time frame is coming from the, the enslaved labor. We cutely call it the sugar trade because it sounds so sweet, but it's enslaved labor bringing you indigo and coffee and sugar. Uh, that's running the world. That's, it's, it's amazing how much wealth is dependent on it. And then when you look at the history, like go back and you read some of Jane Austen's, she talks about uh, people having to go back to Antigua to make sure their plantations are running well because it's starting to affect their lifestyles in Britain. Mm. So when they aren't getting the money out of these plantations, uh, they have to go back and get new drivers, you know, add more slave crews, et cetera, because mm-hmm. they have to maintain the way they are, want to live in England. And that's just taken from Jane Austen's text. So you sort of followed the money at its base level um, Mm -hmm. to identify the characters that at the heart of this story. When I started writing, there was always this question of the level of agency a Black woman could have in the Regency. Because if you look at what's been mainly produced, it would be a servant or an enslaved person. Yes. Um, But when I go back and read books and, and literature from that time frame, even looking at the art, I'm seeing something different. There's a disconnect. So in my world, I was always looking for a Dorothy. Okay, wait. So Vanessa just said, I was always looking for a Dorothy. She's talking about Dorothy Kerwin Thomas, the real woman whose story she tells in Island Queen. She explains how even though there were hints of a woman like Dorothy, a woman of color with agency and wealth in Jane Austen's work. It was ultimately a sketch, a cartoon in a newspaper that led her to the real Dorothy. It's a great story. You read Sanditon, um, Jane Austen's very last book. The wealthiest woman in the book is Miss Lamb, who is a mulatto from the West Indies. Now, is Jane just being extra progressive or is she writing about the things that she's seeing? Because as as modern historians are looking at her works now, she's really writing about her father's connections to Antigua. She's reading, you know, other relatives who've married people who've gone back and forth from the islands. She's telling a story based on her familiar relations. So there had to be a Miss Lamb somewhere. And my goal was always to find it. And I literally came across a cartoon that shows Prince William Henry lovingly embracing a black woman in a hammock. And it's done by a, one of the, the rival editorial cartoonists of the day. His name is Gilroy. He loves to make fun. He loves to make fun of royalty. He loves to make fun of women. He's slightly mm. misogynistic, very sexist. You know, he's going to do every caricature you think of big behinds and noses and all these sorts of things. But this woman is drawn beautifully. There's no exaggerations in her features. She's drawn beautifully. Um, And you can tell this is a Black woman that is being embraced. 
So he's tattling on the prince. He's not trying to make fun of the woman. She's part of the big, this is what your prince is doing as he's sailing in his frigates in the West Indies. So you follow the rich man, as I always say, because men are much more highly documented than women ever are. You look at everything because everything prior to him becoming king or his own personal papers, uh, Prince William, who becomes King William IV, everything is actually burned on his side. His family mm. burned all his papers after he died. I mean, like within a week. Wow. It was very intentional. So what you get is the surviving letters of his friends and buddies. And they talk about him being a wild party maniac in the West Indies. Wow. He's having parties in every one of the islands until he gets to Dominica. When he gets to Dominica, you see his friends are saying he's with that mulatto woman again. Have you seen her? She's such a handsome woman. I finally find one letter that says he danced with Dorothy Kerwin at the Milano Ball. You got all the pieces. That was history. I, I had a name. And, and then when you have it all together and you look at her life, because one of the key pieces of putting everything together for her is the reproductive history. For mm -hmm. women, our reproductive history is our history where we choose to have our children, um, who we put on birth records is incredibly important yes. because it tells choices. And when you see her having some birth records in Maserat, then over a, a thousand nautical miles away in the colony of Demerara, then you have some in Rousseau, then you have some in Granada. It's like, how and why is this woman moving yes. from here there and everywhere. So you've got to go back and put together these pieces. What is making her move? She's got records of businesses being started here in, in Rousseau and they're doing well. Why does she move to Granada? So you have to look at the whole scale. And so when you have those scale and you overlap the world, because then you see the, the various wars, the war of 1812, that's why this happened. This was yes. blocked off. Trade has stopped here. This is affecting her business here. Yes. So you and have to also look at global politics. You also have to look at the at the the number of rebellions that she survives that push her from mm -hmm. place to place. Fascinating. Many of them I had never heard of. You start looking at these worlds because as soon as I found like when I found out she was in Maseret, I had to know everything about Maseret. And you're layering in all these different things and then you match up. The mo one of the most horrific rebellions in the West Indies. And she's right there. <laughs> she is an incredible survivor. But did you have to embellish that in any way? Or did she actually live in those places and survive those things? Because yes. she's just, she has an uncanny knack for rising up and surviving and then drawing the people back to her that are important to her. I thought her survival her strength, the way you portray her strength. And one of the other things I want people to know as a reason to read it is there's so much love in her life. You just write the loves of her life so beautifully. So where does that come from for you, writing that tenderness? Is that something you're drawn to write about? I'm drawn to write about it. And, you know, she lived three lifetimes. The yes. average woman during that time frame lives about 30, 35. She lives three, she lives 90 years. The book yes. only covers 67 of those 90 years. And there is no first person record of her. 
So I had to, that's the part where I got to use my creative juices and just some of the, the characterizations of people talking about her, the way she claims the name Thomas, even though marriage is illegal. That might be me, my romantic heart reading into these things. But to me, it felt very real. And to explain why certain things happen in certain movements, I didn't want her to be two-dimensional in any regards. Sometimes the narrative of the superwoman comes out, you know, superwoman, I can do all these things and nothing affects me. And I, my heart is my own. And I'm just, I never saw that as her. Never yes. And there that. was a risk in that because of the way you've described her. She's an incredible survivor. She lives three lifetimes. She keeps coming out on top. So mm. there was a risk of that happening where you, you would have a tendency to strip the humanity away from her. Mm-hmm. So that's a really great point is that you create some of that vulnerability for her, that tenderness for her through the ways that she experiences love mm-hmm. in a man's world. Exactly. She's doing all of this. You are so right. She's doing all this in a man's world. Mm-hmm. And for women, it's different. Even when we get that seat at the table, it's still mm-hmm. different. And she's still subject to that. And it is so easy to paint somebody who has accomplished a lot of things as just so special and so different that she's unattainable. And one of the reasons I love to love bringing her back to the world is because people need to hear about her. If you only picture an enslavement story and you only picture distant far centuries of kings and queens in Africa, there's nothing to grab onto. Mm. You're either a distant uh, potential relative of a king or your, 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 your whole genealogy is enmeshed in enslavement. Where is the aspirations? You know, everyone else gets to have explorers. Everyone else gets to have inventors and presidents and all these different lineages and successful rebellions. You know, the American Revolution, a successful rebellion, right? We are stripped of these different narratives. We started this, why do I feel engineering is actually easier? Because one plus one is two. In the writing world, market perception, what people are willing to accept is often sometimes different than the actual facts. Mm. We have a tendency to look back and just remember only the good or paint everything as evil. When sometimes it was very gray, there are various gray areas. I don't know if our minds are able to handle gray areas as well as black and white. Let's pause there in our conversation with Vanessa to listen to a scene from Island Queen. You're going to hear narrator Ajua Ando's performance match and elevate the rich texture of the writing. The book begins with Dorothy as an older, successful woman, and then rolls back to her childhood. The scene you're about to hear is from her early childhood. She's in a hut with her mother and her sister, and a rebellion is raging outside. This is from Island Queen, written by Vanessa Riley, narrated by Adjua Ando. Montserrat, 1761, a rebellion. We were going to die tonight. 
I knew it. Huddled in my mother's hut, I circled the knot in the oak floorboard with my toe. The planks were long and worn. By my cracked window, I shivered in a blanket woven of cast-off threads, waiting for the rebellion to end. We'd seen war off in the sea. Big British ships with silver cannons heading toward Martinique. My pa claimed they want to control the island and to return their enemies to France. Those ships could come to Montserrat next. The French controlled here, too, and most folks served their Catholic god. The British hated that the most. I wish they'd take over if it meant we'd finally have peace. In huts like this, with shutters made of cottonwood and roofs of cocoa palms and thatch, we feared nothing but the overseer's whips. Nothing British could be worse. Dorothy, stay away from the window. All will be well. My ma's voice found me in the dark, her tone, warm and brave and confident, wrapped me like a hug. Guns belched and drove that feeling from my arms. More screams, not the planters' smooth tongues, but our men's, the captives' cries. Part of me wanted to light the fire pit to see into the night. My ma, mamoy, thought smoke puffing out of the roof hole would attract the fight. I didn't think killers needed an invitation. Hot air rising might signal a prickly iguana, one of those spiny big-eyed lizards, not men. More drum drum drumming. I cupped my mouth before the fear in my gut dribbled out in sobs. I told Mamai that I would be brave, but I'd be slaughtered in my fifth year. Not fair, never fair. This place wasn't to be for war, an Emerald Isle par called Montserrat. It was meant for Irish jigs and songs between chores. Dorothy, you're staying away from that window. I bit my lip and peeked through the shutters I'd opened. I shouldn't have. I had to squint at the sooty sky. Stars might be out. Seeing the distant shimmers would let me know all was well. Dorothy, I called to you. That wasn't Mamoy's angry voice. I had a little more time to collect myself, and I rubbed my stinging eyes. That feeling of being cheated ripped at my lungs. Five small years wasn't enough living. None of the dreams in my skull had been born, please. I couldn't die with dreams trapped in my head. Water leaked down my fat mummy apple cheeks. Not fair to die tonight. Not fair at all. Dorothy? I couldn't answer now. The tears would tell her I was weak. She'd be sad. I vowed to never rob her of any more joy. Mamai didn't laugh enough. Her smile was flat, almost a frown. I swore I'd be brave when Pa was gone. Don't know how to do that anymore. How to be strong with the smell of death surrounding the hut. Dorothy, come here, girl, no! My ma stood at my door with baby Kitty asleep on her hip. Knew you were being too quiet, my chatty girl. 
She pointed to the open red shutters. Couldn't help yourself? That sky is talking to you. Readying you to fly away. Mamoy's steady voice calmed the restless bits in my chest. But I couldn't move from the window. I had to see the rebels coming and the smoke rising from the town. Bare feet slapped against the creaking floor. My ma came and yanked me up. Wincing for a strike, I caught love, a strong hug, pulling me close. I stopped shaking as she hummed in my ear. She offered me the tune that she saved for my sister to get her to nap. I loved it. It made good dreams. Deciding I could be five and not brave, I cried against my mother's leg. Her song had no words, at least none I knew, but Mamai's arms were soft. I nestled my cheek again against her hip. The new allotment of Osnaburg cloth she used to make clothes was stiff and scratchy, but I cared not. I held her tighter and marveled at the orange and yellow leaves she'd stained for the print. You'll be all right, Dorothy. The planters will put down the rebellion. The Irish and French always do. Poor Kujo, the fool will get everyone killed. The old man who begs in the square with a hat that covers his eyes. He was responsible for the fields burning. That feeble fellow convinced folks to take up their scythes and shovels to kill the overseers. No, that couldn't be. Pa should be here, Mamai. He should be here to protect us. He always has when he's here. She pulled away, like I had uttered something bad. The shadows in her eyes said I mouthed something very wrong. Turning from me, she smoothed Kitty's rumpled pink tunic. Massa Kerwin is away. That pa of yours has his overseer stocked with guns. Guns are more powerful than anything the poor rebels have. My lungs stung. I looked up at her beautiful brown face and shook my fists. Who do you want to win? Numbers win. Not right or wrong. Numbers, Dorothy. I gawked at her blank look, one my mother often wore, like she'd disappeared inside herself. I didn't want to be sucked into that nothingness where nothing mattered. Couldn't we have the fear gone? Couldn't we be on the side of good? Couldn't we have both? I began the story letting you see that she was successful. She was safe, but she had a problem. Yes. And then I go into telling the story because so that the book doesn't gloss over the pain of enslavement, I had to let you see the pain yes. of enslavement and all of the ramifications and how it affected her so that mm-hmm. you could see how big of a success to come from where she came from, to suffer the things she suffered and to get to this point where she's buying her freedom and that of her family. But I always, I always think of my readers, I want them safe. I want them to understand that, you know, even if I take you through some things, you're, it's going to be okay. It's, and so mm. you see her in this, this position of power. Once again, she still has a problem she has to solve, but 
to me, that was the, the appropriate way to, to tell the story and to spin it so that, that I carry you with me. Mm. So you are, you really are then a champion of a hidden history. How does it feel for you? Like you said a minute ago, you try not to measure the marketplace. You try to just follow your heart to a certain degree, your, your analytical mind. So when you came to her story and you tell it epically, it's 20 hours of audiobook. It is an epic story, right? Yes. How does it feel then to see her story be as well-received as it is, to get the acclaim in the marketplace mm-hmm. that, that you have found? It's, it's an honor. It is an honor to be able to tell her story. And the one thing that I always seek to do is I'm looking for these women um, and I want, because I want to restore them. Um, I, I do a lot of research because I want to get it right to look at them from the lens of where they were in history and how they, they made their progress. To me, she is heroic, not necessarily a hero, but she's, she's heroic being able to survive the things she survived. And I think it's a loss to all of us that literally she's reduced to a paragraph in one book and a chapter in another. I think as a woman of color, to be able to tell our stories and to really be able to dig into things like colorism, the feminism aspects of this woman from our perspective, that is something sometimes missing in the in the historical set and so to me it's just it's such an honor to be able to bring her story back to this day I don't know why she was why she was never mentioned to me it doesn't make any sense this is a triumph uh, to be able to come from basically nothing to become one of the wealthiest women in the West Indies we go back to when I started writing this there was almost a wall sometimes about thinking of the Regency and Georgian timeframes as diverse. Uh, No, it couldn't have happened like this. It would never, no, never, never, no, no, no. The idea, there was like literally 28 dudes in the entire Regency timeframe, spawned over 10,000 books. The odds of you walking into a Duke during that timeframe are very, very low. The odds of you running into a person of color, very, very high during that timeframe. But we will accept certain versions of history because it's been made normalized within our lexicon. These are normalized thoughts. But when we go back and look at actual history and we see how much mobility and how much agency women have actually gained, it blows the mind. And Mm -hmm. I think it will unleash a potential in people. Once you figure out that other people have challenged the system and found a way you're going to challenge the system and find a way because you're not alone. These stories can help guide us. You can find Island Queen and more about Vanessa on her website. I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks to Danielle Barnett at HarperCollins for connecting me with Vanessa. Thanks to Harper Audio and William Morrow. A special thanks to Angela Anderson, who first sang the Island Queen's praises to me. And as always, thank you for listening.